following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Matthew 24, verses 1 through 13. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and to put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we ask you for wisdom in discerning the meaning of your word this morning. We pray that your spirit would speak to us, and, uh, help us to navigate this difficult packet passage that we're going to look at. Um, I pray, Lord, that we would understand what you are trying to communicate through Paul to Timothy and what your Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to the church over the ages. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us in truth, for your word is truth and your spirit is the spirit of truth. We do not want to get it wrong. So help us, Lord, we pray. We submit this time to you for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are continuing our work in Second Timothy. This morning, we're going to look at Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, and that's page 996 in the Pew Bible. I know nine verses is a lot for us, but I didn't want to interrupt Paul, so we let him... Uh, uh, communicate an entire thought here. We're going to look at a passage that might sound quite familiar to you, um, uh, even if you've never read it or heard it before, it will still sound familiar. Um, let's read it and you'll see what I mean. Second Timothy 3, start at verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, 
not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Well now, doesn't this sound like fun? Doesn't this sound like our world today? Even if you have not read this passage before, does it not sound familiar? Describing the world we live in, culture is going from bad to worse. Sinners go on sinning and finding new ways to please themselves. Aren't you glad we're not like that? Well, maybe it's just me, I guess. Not really. I have heard this passage and read this passage and heard it quoted over and over to describe the world that we live in today and today's culture. And I have to admit that it's very easy to draw the conclusion that that's what this passage is about. Look at the world. There's a bunch of jerks out there just living to please themselves. Well, um, those of you who know me um, might feel like you're being set up because this passage is not about the world at all. Yes, gasp. <laughs> <laughs> if we want to be sure that what we believe that that we want to be sure that we believe what the Bible actually says, we have to go beyond cut and paste fortune cookie treatment of scripture. We can't just read a meme on Facebook and say, "Well, that must be the truth. Look, there's a Bible reference right there." This verse, these verses does not at all describe those outside of the church. Paul was not talking about the world when he wrote this to Timothy. He was talking about those within the church. He was talking about people who are at least um, pretended to be part of the church. They were aligned with the church and attached to the church. Are you familiar with the story of the Trojan horse? The big wooden horse here? Most people are. The story goes that the Greek army had been trying to lay siege to the independent city of Troy um, for over 10 years. Troy is mentioned in the New Testament as Troas. You can see it in the book of Acts. Same city. And after all these fruitless years of Greeks trying to destroy the city, the Greeks come up with a plan to uh, to take the city by surprise from the inside. So they they constructed this giant wooden horse. Uh, depending on their translation of the story, some people think it's a giant wooden rabbit, but that was not the Greeks and the Trojans. Whatever, sorry. So they make this big horse, 
and uh, secretly hide a select group of warriors inside of the horse. Not the entire army, just a few guys, including Odysseus. Maybe if you're familiar with uh, um, Greek mythology, you know that name. So the Greek army then gets in their boats and sail away from Troy. And the Trojans bring in this great horse that the Greeks had left outside the city as a victory trophy, thinking that they had outlasted the Greeks finally after 10 years, and we bring in this trophy horse. I don't know why they thought this was a good idea, but they did. And during the night, the Greeks that were hidden inside the great horse snuck out, opened the city gates. The Greek army had sailed back under the cover of darkness. They get into the city, sack the place. Troy loses, Greeks win. End of story. I don't know why we call it the Trojan horse. It's a Greek horse, and the Trojans are a bunch of dummies. But it worked. Anyway, so the story of the Trojan horse, whether it's true or not, doesn't really matter. The story of the Trojan horse also often used for a metaphor, uh, for any trick or strategy where one uh, unwittingly invites the other side in, uh, into their base, and are attacked from the inside. Uh, I'm sure some of you are familiar with computer things. You know a Trojan horse is or Trojan, like a virus, uh, comes into something else and then rips your computer apart. Well, this is exactly what Paul is warning Timothy about long before this uh, horse thing happened. Paul is not warning Timothy against the world. What would be the point in that? People outside of Christ, people that don't know the Lord Jesus, don't live according to his way. Yeah, we get that, right? That's no secret. So it would be pointless for Paul to describe the world in this way. He was warning against those who were at work, or at least would be at work, within the church family itself to draw people away from Christ and draw people after themselves. Not to keep um, keep throwing metaphors at you, but he's describing another another metaphor, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Paul said to the elders of the church in Ephesus, which is where Timothy was, he said to them in Acts 20, uh, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. This is uh, not a new concept, and it's not an unfamiliar concept to the church even today. The people come in, to church looking to gain influence over people and power over people. And it doesn't matter if they're preaching the gospel or not. They just want people to listen to them. I would say the pulpit is a very dangerous place in that way. Um, this is, uh, there's like fertilizer for ego craziness all around here. And if you're not careful, all it matters is as you're, you're all looking at me and listening to me. This is what matters to me, right? Make me feel like a better person. See, this is a problem. I'm, I want to say I don't have that problem, but to say that problem, I don't have that problem is, at least they're not like me, right? I got this figured out, right? Forget about that. Jesus warned about this 
in the parable of the wheat and tares, metaphor number three here. Matthew 13, verse 24. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is not unfamiliar territory for Jesus. So Paul's warning to Timothy and to us is to look out for those who are or will be at work within the church trying to deceive people into following them instead of following Christ in the way that he has given according to the scripture. Okay? So how do we know who they are? Hmm. Paul describes it here. Understand this, that in the last days, that is the time between the age of the apostles and the second coming of Christ. So are we living in the last age? Yes, we are. It's the age of the church. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty, dangerous, perilous times. For people, again, these are people that are counted as part of a church, not outsiders, not unbelievers, not foreigners or or anybody from the outside. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Now, you know me, I like to get at the words and pull them all apart. This is a long list of words that don't need to be further defined. They are very clear. John Calvin wrote, Paul enumerates those vices which are not visible at first sight and which are even the ordinary attendance of pretended holiness. Is there a hypocrite who is not proud, who is not a lover of himself, who is not the despiser of others, who is not fierce and cruel, who is not treacherous? But all, but all these are concealed from the eyes of men. To spend time in explaining every word would be superfluous, for the words do not need exposition. Only let my readers observe that self-love, which is put first, may be regarded as the source from which flow all the vices that follow afterwards. He who loves himself claims a superiority in everything, 
despises all others, is cruel, indulges in covetousness, treachery, anger, rebellion against parents, neglect of what is good, and such like. As it was the design of Paul to brand false prophets with such marks that they might be seen and known by all, it is our duty to open our eyes that we may see those who are pointed out. It's very easy for us to look at a scripture and say, wow, that was really bad for them. I'm glad we don't have to go through that. We do. We are not immune from this. I've been a part of several different church families, and I have stories that I don't want to tell. I have stories that I have not always been the cowboy with the white hat. I've often been the cowboy with the black hat doing these same things because ego is so powerful a force in church leadership, in the leadership of people at all. Like I said, this is a very dangerous spot. So I would covet your prayers to pray for protection from ego and from hypocrisy, not just for me, but for all of us and all those who are given the task of shepherding the family. Now, if you remember, we were talking last week about the instruction to gently correct opponents. Opponents of sound doctrine. Remember back in chapter 2. Well, these folks we're talking about here are not them. That's the people who want to talk about differences of opinion and doctrine. That's different than what we're dealing with here. These people are not those who openly debate or even openly oppose doctrine within a church family. These are people who operate in a much more sinister way under the guise of godliness. If you remember from the Gospels, when Jesus dealt with Pharisees, well, we think of Pharisees as the villains of the New Testament. Well, in a lot of ways they are. But it's because of their hypocrisy that's the problem. Jesus so frequently confronted them. They operated under the veil of holiness, but were inwardly full of greed and wickedness. Paul warns us to avoid such people. Now, I know that if our friend Dave were here, he would say, I can see all the craziness in the world, and my choice is to not participate in it. I can see people that are acting badly and choose to not be like them. That's exactly our choice. We have this horrible list of vices here, sneaky, underhanded, influence-seeking vices, and our choice is simply don't be like that. As I was studying this passage and thinking to myself in my own arrogance, I'm so glad I'm not like those jerks, I could not help but think about what Jesus said in Luke 18, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Oh boy, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. I remember that jerk from way back. I'm so glad I'm not like him. No. Verse 9 of that same passage in Luke, Jesus said, or it says, recorded there, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Like, I'm good, and I don't want to get your filthiness all over me. I just washed these clothes. You stink. Get away. But we do that. We don't want to get the mess of other people on us sometimes. I think the truth is, if we're honest, we can see a little bit of ourselves in this horrible list of vices. Maybe not everyone. But parts of it apply to each of us, I'm sure. We're always going to be tempted to want to get people's attention and to get them to listen to us, even when our integrity as Christ followers is at stake. The challenge is still the same, to avoid such people and avoid being such people. Verse 6 says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. I read a lot of commentary about this particular part, and I want to be very clear. Paul is not saying all women are weak-willed and burdened with many sins. He's talking about a particular group of people, particular particular type of people. Matthew Henry said, A foolish head and a filthy heart make persons easy prey for predators. And that's the truth. And you don't have to be one of these women that Paul describes is anyone can easily be led astray with a foolish head and a filthy heart. False teachers tend to prey on the weaknesses of people, especially a guilty conscience. If you just follow my rules and follow my prescriptions, you don't have to worry about guilt anymore. Right? And how easy is that to pull off in a church? It's very easy. Because don't we come here looking for truth? Don't people go to church looking for the truth? Not everybody that goes to teach in the church is willing to teach the truth. Not everyone that's teaching is teaching the truth. (sighs) 
False teachers creep in and capture. They work their way into the good graces of families with ulterior motives, carefully preserving the appearance of godliness in order to pass off some kind of secret wisdom and new paths of easing burdens of conscience and make slaves of those who would follow their teaching looking for freedom. They take advantage of those who are looking for learning, looking to expand their spirituality, but they never lead to a knowledge of the truth. And that's repentance of sin and faith in Christ alone for forgiveness. J.P. Lang wrote, This is a fine irony which renders the apostles' inward hatred of this sham holy life all the more conspicuous, because learning is not the actual design of the relationship with these women and the false teachers named here but only a means and excuse for the gratification of their sinful, bad desires. They never come to an end with it. There are far too many looking to sway people to follow them. They don't care about the truth. They only care about their influence. Paul uses the example of Janus and Jambres. Ever heard of them before? This is the only place they're mentioned by name in Scripture. But according to Jewish tradition, these were the chiefs of the Egyptian magicians who tried their arts over uh, Moses, uh, against the wonders of Moses, and kept Pharaoh from believing Moses and obeying the Lord. It's also held that once Pharaoh let the Israelites go, and and then changed his mind and pursued them to the Red Sea, and God parted the Red Sea. Moses didn't. God did. And let the Israelites go through the Red Sea. It was Janus and Jambres that drowned first when the water came back through. Oh, that's just tradition. It sounds very romantic and, quite frankly, just. Uh, but who knows? What became of Janus and Jambres? They died, right? The encouragement here from Paul to Timothy and to us is that false teachers, no matter how slick or sneaky, no matter how morally corrupt or reprobate, false teachers have a limited shelf life. Their influence is temporary. Why is that? Because false teachers are trying to deceive people who have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and cannot be deceived. And though someone might follow the influence of a false teacher like this for a time, it will not last. The Spirit will set them free. Though heresy and false doctrine spreads quickly, the eyes of the faithful are open to it all the more quickly by the power of the Holy Spirit. Absurdity and unrighteousness so quickly overstep all bounds and show themselves for what they are to those whose eyes are open. We live in an age of darkness and error. And though error covers the ground like snow, oddly enough, and our culture is slowly giving way to the cold, the sun's rays still shine. And even as cold has been the last few weeks, when the sun shines on my driveway, it's still melting snow. And in the end, truth, like the sun, will win out and error will be forced to retreat when Christ returns in His glory. 
all of that falseness and error will be destroyed. The burden for us until that day is to measure ourselves, measure our teachers, especially me. Measure ourselves, our teachers, our pastors by God's word. I learned long ago that a pastor doesn't give you the references in the scripture just so you can read along and know where he's going. Maybe that's how other people do. I give you the scripture references so that you can read it and see if I'm right and correct me if I'm wrong. That's the point. That's why we study the Bible open, not close. To say, well, the Bible says someplace. Jesus once said one time, where that is, good luck. Right? We need to measure ourselves and our teachers by God's word. And by the help of the Holy Spirit, we will keep from falling into error because we are so well acquainted with the truth. That's the challenge for us. Know the truth, like Jesus said, and the truth has set you free. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this warning. And though this may not be a cheery word to us this morning, it's an important word for us to be careful who we follow, be careful of who we allow to influence us, be careful even within the church family to measure what people say by God's word, to not just uh, settle uh, on the influence of people to guide and direct our thoughts but to allow your word to guide and direct our thoughts. We pray, Lord, the Holy Spirit would continue to instruct us in your word so that we are well acquainted with the truth and we will be kept safe from error. And Lord, help us to not be those people who would influence others just because we like to have influence over others. Help us be careful of that. Protect us from that, Lord. And again, I pray that you would continue um, to speak the truth from this pulpit. That people would not be afraid to measure my words by God's word. Not be afraid to say, I don't think you got that one right. Lord, please protect us from error. Keep us seeking after truth. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.